Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing, my honor, and my privilege to be in dialogue with Marco Armiero, Roberto Biasilo, and Wilco Hardenberg. We will be discussing their newly published book, Mussolini's Nature, an Environmental History of Italian Fascism, published in Cambridge, Massachusetts, by MIT Press 2022. Marco is affiliated with the Institute for the History of Science at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. Roberto is a member of the Department of History and Art at Utrecht University. Wilco is a member of the Department of Cultural History and Theory at Humboldt University in Berlin. I'm so grateful for our time together today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari, for having us. To begin, thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourselves? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your lives catalyzed your scholarly journeys into the scholars you are today? I can start. So, I uh, personally, I grew up in uh, central Italy, and I think I've been always very attached to the countryside in general. What I do now as a scholar is to tell stories about other rural countrysides. So scholarly, I've been trained in Italy as a student, and then uh, after my PhD and during my PhD too, I gained experience in different European countries before landing to the Netherlands, where I'm working at the moment. I think I've been very lucky encountering along my professional way uh, colleagues that have been empowering and supportive, and they made me feel more confident. And I do think I express myself at my best when I do teamwork. So co-thinking and co-writing this book, I think is part of this collective journey and has been a very rewarding experience. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I'll continue. Um, I grew up in uh, in northern Italy, even if my parents are German. I grew up on a uh, on a country house and uh, was always surrounded by nature and my both my brothers are hard scientists so they, one is a biologist and the other one is a physicist but i think that that's affected my interest in becoming a historian of the environment in a very decided way uh, uh my career went through a phd in geography at uh, cambridge university from there i moved to postdocs in history both in italy and then in germany and the united states and then I had a stay as uh, the Institute for the History of Science here in Berlin, which has moved my interest more interdisciplinarily, even more interdisciplinary from history to geography to history of science. And now I see myself as a cultural historian of the environment mostly. I'm interested in the ways in which we perceive the environment and see it developing through history. Okay, I think it's me now, Marco. Uh, I grew up in Naples, Italy. So I am probably the city boy here in the in the group, and um, I do believe that I, as a kid, especially as a high high school student, but also in in the university, I guess I I should confess that I was not so much interested in the environment. I was not. I wouldn't define myself an environmentalist, for instance. I was much more interested in, you know, the struggles for social justice. I was rather involved with the peace movement and these kind of things. I believe that I became interested in the environment and in environmental history, especially because when I arrived at university, I enrolled in a history program, basically. Well, everything was more or less dead around me. I was looking for, you know, social history, for history of the workers, worker movements and so on and so forth. And I couldn't find anything like that at that time. The university was much more conservative. And I realized that environmental history was the most powerful tool I had at that time to develop a critical and radical understanding of the capitalist society. So in this sense, I arrived a little bit later, I guess, to uh, uh, environmental history and in general to the environmental issue. 
uh, in terms of uh, meeting, encounters, and so on and so forth, I believe that my time at Lawrence, Kansas in the U.S. with Donald Worcester, one of the fathers of environmental history, was very important, was crucial to become the kind of uh, scholar I am now. And I also should mention my dear uh, students all over my you know, career, Roberta and Wilco, I was lucky enough to meet both of them uh, during their PhD. Uh, and uh, I think that if I am the scholar I am now, it's also thanks to them. Thank you so much. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? Yeah, to link to what Marco just said, I think that, yeah, we, uh, Marco, Wilco and I, had already collaborated together in different formations on co-author papers and edited volumes. And uh, we are and we were aware that we um, we had complementary uh, perspective on the study of fascism. And we also have a similar understanding of what environmental history as a discipline should address. So we shared one of the possible take on the discipline and we combined in this book our different perspectives in cultural history, history of conservation, and uh, colonial history mostly. So I think that the first reason behind Mussolini's nature is our friendly and professional relationship. Uh, then the second reason is that 2022 marked the centenary, centenary of the March on Rome. So it marked the beginning of the fascist regime in Italy. And among other publications offering overviews or uh, uh, works on specific topics, uh, such as gender, violence, architectures, buildings in general. So we realized that an environmental history perspective of Italian fascism was still wanted. And uh, this leads to the message of this book. So the idea that we want to convey is that uh, environmental history should not be confined to uh, a list of green topics. So or uh, to what Marco defined the green ghetto in one of his uh, papers. So the idea is that what we want to do is to, with environmental history, is that the discipline is able to illuminate it, to engage with general and traditional historical phenomena or general topics in uh, histories. So we claim that the environment is an appropriate way to explore fascism and to explore any political regime. And of course, we are not alone here. So there are other scholars in environmental history that are doing that. So the challenge of our book is to let the reader see the environment in economic policies, for instance, as much as in national parks, and to see fascism in specific historic environments. Thank you for sharing. What are the primary I... themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Yeah, uh, thank you. So connecting to what Roberta just Oh, sure. uh, I, this is a, this book contains a multiplicity of stories. We were convinced that there was not one environmental history of fascism because fascism has a complex regime, which has a very diverse set of, uh, interests and issues and did not have a peculiar interest in the environment as such, but it expresses environmental policy through a multiplicity of different approaches. So we go from the ways in which nature was embodied in the, into Mussolini. That's one of the things that we discussed in chapter one. We go through what has been called the natural wars. So the battle for wheat or the re reclamation of uh, swamps throughout the history of fascism and throughout and how it had a role in propaganda. Uh, then we go to look at fascist modernity, how fascist modernity or the attempts of fascism to become, to make Italy into a modern country, express themselves in things like outer key or the construction of dams, or the, the development of new engines that would use new, new, uh, new, new fuels to, to move the, the economy of a regime that was seen as poor and resources. And then we go into the history of conservation in, of nature conservation in the regime. How was conservation seen and how was it affected to then go beyond Italy because the regime itself at some point went beyond Italy, trying to become a colonial power or strengthening the colonial powers of Italy and looking at how a regime that was very nationalistic moved into the ecologies of different places around the world. And we then sum this up 
into looking into how the history of the environment of the fascist uh, political ecology has been seen still or has affected the landscape of Italy throughout the decades following the fall of the regime. There's a quotation that I'd be curious to ask you about on page 179. You write as follows. Between caged lionesses and drain swamps, gasogene engines and electric forests, blooming deserts and imperial races, the regime developed its own political ecology in which the mobilization of nature was functional to fascist narratives and national interests. As we have shown throughout this book, to speak of a fascist political ecology is by no means to imagine that the regime had an environmental sensibility. Fascism was not particularly attentive to issues of environmental conservation, not even in its much celebrated policies on national parks. It was an ideological issue before a scientific or technical one. Fascism had the ambition to reclaim, that is improve, the nation and its inhabitants. Its mission could not be to conserve what it had inherited from the past. Even the ruralist discourse in the manner of Arnaldo Mussolini was, in reality, a celebration of human ingenuity and peasant cultures. In other words, it was a celebration of a constructed landscape in which it was impossible and meaningless to try to separate nature from people. After all, as we have seen in Mussolini's own biographies, the fascist discourse on race was inherently a narrative that mixed nature, history, and humans. Can you elaborate on the above? Can you say more about this passage and explain it to us. So the key term here, or the key idea in this passage is the idea of connection. So, and this links to the very meaning of the term political ecology. So every political regime has its own connections to nature. Sometimes they're more explicit, other times they're less visible. And authoritarian regimes, and in particular Italian fascism, developed and showcased a connection with nature for propaganda purposes or for achieving social and economic transformation of specific areas of the country. So marshlands, mountains, or cities. So the connection between inhabitants and uh, spaces. So Italian fascism then incorporated specific ideas of nature in many policies affecting different areas. Colonial policies, demographic policies, uh, economic policies relied on nature a real nature or an imagined nature. And the transformed environments were uh, achieved via the means of science and technology. So and fascism exploited resources and used the environment also as a means to create consensus, as Wilco said, also internationally and not only nationally. So the political ecology of fascism that is reconstructed in our book is a way to trace all these connections that are mentioned in this passage and to see like fascist decisions or processes in the regime building uh, of the fa of fascism, how they interacted with nature. So the active role of Italian nature in shaping fascism and conversely, how fascism affected and recreated material and ideal Italian and nationalistic nature are at the core of our book. So ecology does not simply mean the natural dimension of the regime but it goes to the etymology of the term ecology, and it refers to the ideas of connections, relations, network, and this is part of the environmental history approach. So the idea here is to connect politics, broadly conceived, and nature. Thank you. Should we add, can I add please. something about this? Yeah. Very, 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 very quickly. I mean, another thing that maybe we can add uh, on this is that in the popular discourse, and perhaps uh, even more today in Italy, there is an expression that this is often repeated. Mussolini also did some good things, no? This is the expression. Mussolini also did some good things. Historian Francesco Filippi has written a book to demolish this argument and we have contributed to this intellectual effort demonstrating that also from the environmental point of view 
the fascist interventions were not conductive of any positive results. But in contrast with the opinion, uh, in contrast with the opinion of other scholars, and I'm thinking here yeah, especially of Anna Bramwell, very famous uh, hypothesis on Italian fascism. No? In contrast with these kind of opinions, we believe that it is important to research the environmental discourses and policies of the fascist regime. Because our aim was not, as Roberta said just now, is not, was not to measure how much or whether the fascist regime was green. And thus, this being green mean always the same, the same thing across decades or even century. But rather than measuring how green they were, I think that we, are, we were interested in what Roberta mentioned, well, which kind of political ecology the regime was producing uh, for its own aims. So I guess that, you know, also this reflection about the fascist environmental legacy could be something interesting to, to mention here. Yeah, I, I might add also that the, the idea of doing good things, if you do it through violence and imposition and radical transformation and so on, it affects the way these good things are interpreted in the future. And so the fascist regime is characterized by violence in its essence. This is what characterizes the right-wing dictatorships in their origin story. So the fact that something might have been yawned as a good story and afterwards or during the regime does not affect the fact that the way these things were reached went to killing, destroying, and uh, oppression. Thank you. Can you comment on the significance and meaning of ruralism? Yes, uh, maybe I can try. It's something that I've been working on for a while, of course, together with Wilke uh, and Roberta. So ruralism, ruralism is a key concept in the fascist movement and ideology. The rural world was the cradle of the Italian race, whatever it might have been, this Italian race, and the custodian of traditions. So ruralism was a celebration of the rural world against the urban and industrialized world. Um, as I said, the rural world was the custodian of the true fascist ideals, while the city was the source of everything new, hybrid, and contaminated. In this sense, ruralism was the Italian version of the Nazis' blood and soil. In fact, ruralism merged discourses about the land with discourses about race and culture. The rural world was prolific, offering men to be offering men to the fatherland, maybe for the war, right, as soldiers, while the urban world was sterile. And here, the patriarchal nature of fascist ideology was particularly visible in the opposition between rural women, fertile and submissive, and the urban women, emancipated and neurotic. Perhaps there is no need to stress here that all this celebration of a rural world did not imply any improvement in the material conditions of rural people under the fascist regime. On the contrary, the situation worsened with the restriction of mobility, for instance, the repression of several rural activities, such as the grazing of goats, the expansion of hydroelectric plants, and the attack against common property. In the end, ruralism was celebrating the rural people because they were the perfect soldiers for the fascist wars, nothing else. Can you tell the story of Mussolini's reclamation of the Pontine marshes? I guess, uh, yeah, I, I have to make a disclaimer. I don't think that the Pontine marshes can be understood outside of the broader story. So uh, the regime had this push throughout the 1920s and into the 1930s for what they called integral land reclamation, which was seen as a broader project of transformation of the landscape, transformation of Italy and of its natural landscapes into a productive landscape. The Pontine marshes are only one example of this of this broader story and this broader uh, battle to take up the uh, war ide uh, ideology that's characterized fascism so uh, the 
the plans to transform the Pontine Marshes have went over uh, centuries. Roberta has written a whole book about the history of the Pontine Marshes up to 1928. So there is a much longer story to be told uh, about how this landscape was transformed, how water was extracted from it to make it more productive and so on. It was not only a fascist history. And this fact that continuities are more typical to fascism than big ruptures, especially in its uh, transformation of the landscape, are a, a pretty common thing you will see throughout this interview and throughout our book. Uh, so the idea to take this landscape just outside Rome as a symbol of the transformative power of the regime, making the thing that the liberal elites of the previous regime hadn't been able to do, became a very strong uh, motto for the fascist policies. And so they went into the landscape, began what has been shown on public press outside of Italy, inside Italy, and has become the symbol of the power of the transformation of the fascist regime throughout history. But there is a but. The fascist regime itself didn't do much. Out of 8 million hectares that it claims uh, to, have, to have planned to transform, only half a million hectares were actually uh, reclaimed by the fascists throughout the time period they were in power. Uh, the another one and a half had already been reclaimed by the previous regimes, and two million hectares were still in progress. So you see, it's a it's a drop in a sea. They what they actually did was a third of what had already done by the previous regimes. But all the efforts to put this on posters to move people from inside Italy make what has been called internal colonization, creating a new uh, new Italians mixing groups of Italians from different regions in this landscape uh, has had a big symbolic value. And also the fact that newspapers around the world, as we show, as we discussed in the book, picked up on this idea that we should do something similar. Uh, even the British started saying we should do this in the fence. We should adopt the idea of the fascist regime. And do it and do it in the fence and create also new Brits while we are doing it. So I think that we think that or we we show in the book how the whole idea of reclaiming uh, the Pontine Marshes is not so much a pilot project or a successful example of transformation of the landscape, but it's much more a symbolic project something that was aimed at convincing people that the fascist regime was efficient. But all this not being at the same time, because the transformation was minimal, the problems were amassing, the buildings that were built had, for example, it was the 1930s, uh, and it's, it's incredible, the building that they built for the colonists had no electricity and had no current water. So it was a project which technologies from the... Uh, technologies from the 19th century adopted in the 20s, this at the same time in which the TVA was developing the la its landscapes and bringing electricity throughout throughout the United States. So, uh, so this is the, it's an idealization of a transformative effect. And in one thing they have been successful, convincing everybody that it was a success, while not being at a reality. Can you comment on the ideology and practice of autarky in Mussolini's Italy? Yes. Yes. So literally, autarky refers to a state of economic self-sufficiency and independence. The idea is that the nation must be independent from abroad. No, everything must be produced inside and within the nation. However, as we have explained in the book, the fascist autarky was a close relative of colonial expansion. And this is also, you know, really a contradiction of this self-sufficiency that is also thinking about building a colonial empire. As a matter of fact, uh, autarky started precisely with the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. As a project, 
as a fascist project autarchy combined highly symbolic, almost religious gestures, such as Italians donating their wedding rings to the homeland, precisely in 1935, and significant daily practices, insignificant daily practices, such as drinking uh, coffee made of chicory, right? So trying to be uh, self-sufficient also with this kind of gesture. So autarchy could be defined as the continuation of what Vilko just explained. So the continuation of reclamation by other means. For both land reclamation and autarky, the regime proposed to develop every corner of nature in the country, leaving nothing unproductive. The natural richness, richness of the country, be it, I don't know, the soil or the Alpine rivers or coal or whatever it was, no? So the natural riches of the country did not exist as such, but only as a function of the fascist ingenuity capable of putting a value on what was apparently worthless. Now, let me just end saying a few words about the fact that this fascist autarchy has nothing to do with present days ideas about degrowth, for instance, or environmental informed limitation of consumerism. Autarchy, as I said, autarchy aimed to extract value from every corner of the country, no? placing all the resources at the service of the nation. Now, what is ecological? What could be ecological about something like that? Plus, Fascist autarchy spoke of self-sufficiency, sure, while conquering colonies. So the only thing we can learn from this story, from the uh, fascist autarchy story, is that it is not enough to recycle something, to create a more sustainable and just society. A little bit what Wilk also mentioned at the very beginning of our uh, chat, you know, when he said that, that the point is not only you know, doing something good, but also the general political and ecological aim and framework of what we are doing. What was the forestry militia? Can you elaborate? Okay, maybe I can go ahead with this. Um, so uh, this this can be pretty easy to explain because it's a very specific question. No? So what happened was that in 1926, the fascist regime transformed the Royal Forest Corps into the National Forest Militia. Now, this step marked the militarization of the Forest Corps, which was incorporated into something called the Voluntary Militia of National Security. And this thing, the Voluntary Militia of National Security, was created to normalize and institutionalize the violence of the fascist squads. So why is this passage so relevant in our book? No, you may say it's almost a bureaucratic uh, passage. We think it's very important, it's crucial, because it means the shift from a technocratic vision of the protection of nature and especially of forests to a repressive, repressive option of control of local population. In short, the new militia increased its policing responsibilities to the detriment of protection activities, while laying the foundations for the centralization and fascistization of nature. And the creation of forestry militia will also, I think that also connect with what I have tried to convey with ruralism, no? what we said a moment ago. Celebrating and punishing were the two sides of the fascist approach to the rural world. What were Mussolini's policies toward national parks in Italy? Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for asking this. Uh, so the simple answer is not much, but there is uh, uh, so the legend, also in this case, that uh, but they say but Mussolini founded the four first national parks of Italy. So there has been a big impact on the history. But it's a more complex story, as usual. The 
first two national parks had been, uh, which are Gran Paradiso and Abruzzo, had been discussed for uh, years before they were founded by Mussolini between nine, and the end of 1922 and the beginning of 1923. The Abruzzo National Park had already been instituted as a private uh, national park uh, by an association in uh, in late 1921, so it was already there. And in ni- early 1923, it was only formalized as a state institution. While for the Grand Paradiso National Park, the story is uh, the area had been a hunting reserve of the king for 70 years by then, more or less. And the king, for the economic situation of the post-war year, had decided to donate his reserve to the state with the commitment to make it into, into a national park. Over three years from the end of the world, three, four years from the end of the world, the um, government had not come to create, to make a park out of it because of financial issues. They had not the money to do it. And so uh, Mussolini, when as soon as he came to power, after one and a month and a half, uh, pressed by some local politicians, grabs the opportunity to show also in this case like for the reclamation of the Pontine Marshes, that the fascist regime was doing this thing that the liberals had not been able to do and instituted the park. But this did not mean that it had an interest in this. The administration was left in both cases, both the Bruzzo and the Grand Paradiso to the local, the local administration, and the park was uh, managed in a way that resembled the administration of national parks in the whole world, in the rest of the world. This until 1933. That year, which marks in continuity with what Marco just told about the institution of the National Forestry Militia, marked the nationalization of conservation in Italy. The two parks were brought under direct state control and given over to the Forestry Militia, which became in charge of conservation. The issue here was that it was a forestry militia. It was a technical corps in charge of controlling how woods were managed, how energy was extracted from woods, and so on and so on. It was not a conservation corps. They had no capacity, they had no training, they had no interest. And moreover, over the years, the people managing the park changed more or less every year. So there was no real control, and both parks declined after 1933. Other people would then tell you, yes, but they they also found it. Oh, sorry. They also instituted Stelvio National Park and the Cherchéo National Park, which are the fascist national parks. These were not coming from previous ideas. Yes, but the Stelvio National Park was essentially a natural monument to war. It was set on the border between, uh, on the front line of World War One, and it was created just drawing a line on a map and instituting it on paper, but there was no uh, commitment to protecting any species, there was no commitment to protecting any landscape, there was no, there were no rules on how protection should happen. So it was a park just on paper. The real institution of the park would have called later in the 1950s. And for the Chircheo, which is the most uh, evident example, it is placed in the area of the reclamation of the Pontine Marshes. And it is said to be uh, preservation of the landscape as it used to be before reclamation happened. But this is what it's said to be, because this is not what it is. It is actually a new forest in which water is extracted, like in the rest of the Pontine Marshes reclamation, through ditches, cement ditches, to bring the water out of the park and keep it controlled. And it is not a uh, forest that existed there before, it's just rather more a new planting in part. For example, they replanted uh, the original Mediterranean maquis, which had been taken off through the reclamation, with eucalyptus, which is an exogenous species coming from, from Australia, which has uh, which did not have anything to look for in the area. So the impact of fashion conservation is, again, it's propaganda. It's a few symbols through there, throughout, through over 20 years. Uh, the early ones, because it was a opportunity to show something, the later ones to mark symbols, certain other things. But the impact on the environment 
was never one of conservation. It was either one of transformation or one of destruction. How can the study of conservation be enhanced by your study of Mussolini's approach to nature? Yeah, I, again, thank you for the question. It's, uh, I think it's important in the study of the history of conservation to look at how politics are central in understanding how things, how things happen. Who is in charge? Who will be affected by certain policies? Uh, will the local communities still have a voice in uh, managing the specific area? Let's take the example of the Grand Paradiso National Park, the first national park instituted as such in Italy in the December of 1922. This park was based in its first 10 years when it was still managed along liberal guidelines as a park based on local control. They were representative of the local communities managing uh, the, the area and helping to define what should be done. And this helped to balance the opposition of urban interest for conservation. Let's preserve this specific animal species because it's a symbol of something and local interest of use of the territory, finding ways to counterbalance these opposing interests. With the shift to the 1933, to the shift to centralization, this balance disappeared. Everything was put onto maintaining the symbol to the, uh, to, the, to the mindering of the interest of the local population. I think this example is important to show how politics and conservation must be seen con at the same time. The examples can be brought also to, to other places and other, uh, other countries at other times. But the intermingling of the study of conservation and the study of politics, I think, is central for a development of new ways of intending conservation and uh, the preservation of nature. What new insights and information are presented in your study regarding Italy's East African and North African empires? I can take this one. Thank you, Ari. So Italian colonialism so far has been studied mostly from a cultural and military perspective and uh, a bit from an economic perspective. And there's a the major overview on Italian colonialism is the uh, book by Nicola Labanca titled Oltremare. So the first novelty of our book is the attempt to unveil the role of African environments and fascist imaginaries of African environments uh, within the broader phenomenon of Italian colonialism. And the role of the environment in colonial history is paramount. So I think this is an important point to, um, to highlight. And we argue that no colonial policy can be detached from the conceptualization of nature and that the outcome of fascist colonial policies that were much connected with propaganda, as Wilco said, rather than with uh, material outcomes, relied on uh, nature together with other aspects. So the first novelty is this new approach to Italian colonialism via the environment. Uh, the other novelty of our reconstruction is the time frame. So we covered the 20 years of fascist rule in Africa, while most of the studies covered the 1930s or they covered the first part of the fascist regime. So this time frame is important because it allows it allows to highlight the shifts and the disarray within the fascist uh, uh, colonial project. So Africa in the 1920s, for example, is seen as a very harsh environment and is not a place for uh, the uh, like a mass demographic uh, colonization, while it is an area for capitalist colonization, for model farms. While if we look at the very same environment portrayed by pro fascist propaganda in the 1930s and described in fascist policies in the 1930s, we had a completely uh, different idea. So we had an idea of African environments as promised lands. So adopting a two decade long perspective allowed us to look at the development of the fascist project in colonies. Uh, just to give you another example, for, uh, for instance, we can see how East Africa developed in the 1930s as the land of gold. But why? Because it had to fulfill the, uh, the place for uh, implementing the policy of outer care. So those, if we look at the 
20 years long, uh, 20 year long uh, fascist rule, I think we can say much more about fascism. And finally, from a methodological perspective, as we have already touched upon this uh, issue, so we followed single stories of individuals, places of firms that had never been interpreted and placed within the frame of the fascist regime. So again, the combination of these stories um, is able to say something about fascism rather than uh, simply on Italian colonialism. So again, looking at the environment is a tool to look at uh, the fascist regime. Can you mention any personalities, groups, and non-human actors that deserve special attention in the environmental history of Italian colonialism? Well, besides the usual suspect of uh, this reconstruction, that is, of course, Mussolini. And Mussolini was very present and active in directing policies. And uh, also besides the governors that are present in other reconstructions of uh, fascist colonialism and colonialism in general, we can identify specific human actors and also specific non-human actors. And this is the important part that environmental history can uh, brought to the fore, can bring to the fore. So... The first human actor that uh, we encounter in the book uh, is the group of pioneers. And the Italian pioneers constituted the first wave of colonizers, and they were aristocrats, bureaucrats, scientists, but they shared uh, a key feature. So they were all embedded in fascist institutions, or they had a very close relation either with Mussolini or with other extremely influential figures within the fascist regime. So... Uh, at the end of the day, this first group of pioneers turned out to be uh, speculators. So the second human actor and is constituted by rural families. So we have a 360 degree change compared to the previous actor. So rurals were instrumental in bringing about the second phase of fascist colonization. So namely the demographic and agricultural conquest of colonists, families, and not anymore male individuals with a high fertility potential that were poor, disciplined, and willing to uh, be to be fascistized were uh, key in the um, fascist, in the fascistization of uh, Libya and East Africa. So the third actor, uh, always human actor, are uh, indigenous communities. So indigenous communities fought against the regime. And they were the object of specific dispossession and annihilation policies, especially in Libya. Uh, but their role did not uh, did not was not limited to these two. So they also were part and parcel of the fascist colonization pro, uh, process. So the fascist colonization made use of local human power as workers, builders, as as farmers, and they were also part of a specific agricultural scheme. So the indigenous uh, uh, villages, for example, were elaborated by the fascist regime specifically for uh, tribes uh, in Libya. And then, of course, uh, we have no human actors and plants played an essential role in uh, depicting the areas as suitable for Italian settlers or for uh, European agriculture, but also plants express the creole ecologies created by the colonization. Uh, olive trees are like fabulous entry points uh, for expressing uh, plants that were both Italian and Libyan, or that were only Libyan, or I mean, the, the very in the very same specimen, uh, we can see a shared and the mixed heritage. So this is very interesting to uh, to highlight. Uh, also, tobacco or cotton can tell the story of different colonization uh, schemes, so the plantation schemes, that despite being marginal in the Italian project, they were present both in East and North Africa. Uh, finally, before closing to, with this question, I think animals uh, are essential, again, to uh, to complete the overview uh, of the Italian colonialism. So animals show... Animals show the misunderstanding of African nature by the regime if we look at the transfer of cattle that were not able to adapt to arid environments, or if we look at the uh, camels that were killed along with violence against nomadic peoples. Uh, but animals, on the other hand, can also tell the story of the fascination towards the exotic nature, especially uh, in, um, especially with uh, regards to wildlife in Somalia. 
He write as follows on page 178. The empire of work was also above all this, a narrative that recounted the heroism of Italian pioneers who went to Africa to build infrastructure and model farms. In short, war, dispossession, and violence disappeared not only and not so much from the ugly monument to the legionnaire, but from memory and public discourse overall. Similarly, land reclamation is celebrated as an expression of Italian work and tenacity, if not that of the regime, dissolving and making visible any connection with the wider fascist political ecology. It is not so much a matter of erasing or protecting monuments or streets, but instead of preventing them from becoming mute pieces of a landscape without history, all too familiar signs on maps that we use without realizing it. Can you elaborate on this for us? Uh, sure. And I can also uh, start this discussion on heritage and legacy of fascism. So in the extract that you just uh, read, there are two elements of fascist propaganda that survived fascism. The first one is the empire of work, and the second one is the empire of agricultural valorization. So their use during and after fascism is well conveyed by the trajectory of the monument that you mentioned. So this monumental complex that was supposed to be uh, held in Addis Abeba in the 1930s. So the original plan was to have two distinct monuments, one dedicated to the Italian soldier and the other one dedicated to the Italian worker. Only the former, so the part dedicated to the Italian soldier, was realized. But the outbreak of World War II prevented the monument to be placed in, um, in what at that time was the capital of the Italian Empire. So the paradox here is that this monument was not considered that much controversial during the Republican period. And in the 1960s, the very same blocks of marble were put in place in an Italian city in Syracuse, in Sicily. And despite their iconological apparatus conveying the idea of violence and war, the, these blocks of marble were resignified as a monument to the worker because it was much less uh, controversial to title a monument to a worker. Uh, so the only change that was done to, the, uh, to, the, to this monument was the removal of a few statues. So we have two operations here. The reinterpretation of Italian colonial enterprises as civilizing and as a means for socioeconomic improvement, both for the metropole and for the colonists. And the second operation is the active form of targeted amnesia. So that is so the so-called rimosso in Italian scholarship. What has been removed here is violence, different forms of violence. So just to conclude and to open up the discussion is that in recent years, we have also seen a reverse process against the Rimosso. So the connection between fascism, colonialism and violence is gaining uh, momentum thanks to several projects and several actions. Uh, I just want to mention the toponymy guerrilla uh, launched by the collective booming. So they made it clear to residents uh, in Italian cities that behind sanitized street names, uh, those streets were named after colonial perpetrators. So there is a trend in which the Rimosso, at least in the public debate and in the public space, is targeted much more uh, in, the, in the recent year, just to unmute the uh, historical value of the places that we crossed that we cross every day and we experience every day. How does your study advance our understanding of collective memory and collective amnesia? Yeah, I, I may add something that Roberta has already said a lot on this, I, I think, and, and concluding her previous question. And uh, but I thought there is also more. Um, the whole landscape of Republican Italy is a landscape literate with fascist remnants of one sort or the other. We have used an expression taken from a book of narrative, which is horizontal archaeology. The uh, gas pump of the 1950s is next to a medieval castle, which is next to a fascist monument of some sort, or the uh, Casa del Fascio, so a seat of the fascist party, and so on. So it's it's hard to traverse the Italian landscape 
without coming across some symbol or the other. In over the years and in different places, like for example, the cities grounded through during the uh, reclamation of the Pontine marshes, there has been multiple debate about what has to be maintained, what has to be preserved, what has to be taken away of old inscriptions of one way or the other. And again, um, I may be sort of repetitive, but collective memory and collective amnesia are historical products. They are products of a political, of a certain political situation. They are the outcome of the story that they tell or do not tell. The willingness to remember fascism has been throughout Italian post-fascist history very low because fascism was seen is seen in historiography as well, especially also in recent years as the minor totalitarian, the totalitarian that didn't really make it, the the one that wasn't so bad. It was it was a soft a soft dictatorship. This we show throughout the book is not true. It was a violent, extremely violent regime that gave the idea of fascism throughout the world, one, an Italian export that we would not have liked to, to have in reality. And so what I, what I think I'm trying to say is that the issues of collective memory and collective amnesia need to be always considered when we look at the history of a regime like the fascist one. Okay, <clears throat> maybe I can just join the the team here and say something also about this issue, which is very relevant of amnesia and collective uh, memory. Now, first of all, I think that we need to say that this book has uncovered stories of the Italian fascism that had not been explored yet, because after all, I believe that ours is the first comprehensive environmental history of fascism. So in this sense, I believe that we have indeed contributed to our collective memory. But to be more uh, specific on your question, I, I think that maybe we should also add that we have written this book in a time of heated debates over the controversial legacies embedded in our present. The movement decolonized this place has unveiled the multiform toxic legacies we all inhabit in our daily life. And in our book, as Roberta and Vilko have already said very well, in our book we have addressed we have addressed this issue. Italy is packed with the legacy of the fascist regime, as Vilko said, but we insist on one point, and this is the point that Roberta has already made, that we believe this legacy cannot be mute. It must speak and tell the stories of violence, of oppression and resistance that are inherent to Italian fascist past. And I, I think that in this sense, the book is also a celebration, if I can use this word, of the initiatives that are going on right now and that are trying to make this work and trying to make this legacy uh, speak about oppression, violence, and resistance. Roberta mentioned already the toponymy, uh, guerrilla toponymy. Uh, I, maybe I could mention another one that we also discuss in the book, which is the so-called decolonial tours. So this idea of you know going around uh, the Italian cities to expose the colonial legacies that are embedded in the daily landscape we are all inhabiting. And I believe that we need to recognize that there is a grassroots movement towards giving a sense to uh, this fascist legacy uh, that is still with us today. Thank you. On page four, you write as follows. Since we do not believe in commandments start carved in stone and are not interested in issuing or rescinding, licenses for greenness, we prefer to work on the political ecologies of fascism or the practices and narratives through which the regime built a fascist ecology in its discourse and on the land. It's worthwhile clarifying that our use of quote-unquote ecology has nothing to do with ecologism and does not coincide with ecologically sustainable management. When we speak of a fascist political ecology, we refer to the instrumental ideas and material uses of nature that fascism developed to further its political agenda. 
we are not interested in understanding how many hectares of land were reserved for national parks or how many trees were planted during the fascist decades. Instead, we want to investigate how the regime produced socio-ecological formations. In other words, ecosystems made of narratives and plants, memories and bears, domesticated lions, and wild populations to be subjugated. In short, we don't believe at all that fascism was disinterested in nature. Can you elaborate on this insight for us? I can start maybe. Uh, and I, I really want to thank you because I believe that this, with this question, in a way, we are going back to the first question, the question uh, with which we have started our conversation today, you know? Uh, why? Because I think that uh, we were somehow reacting to uh, the rather strong idea that the fascist regime was not interested in nature. I have mentioned at the very beginning of our chat Anna Bramwell, for instance. No? So we rejected the simplistic overlapping between conservation and interest in nature, as if someone were interested in nature only when trying to protect it. This is why we decided to frame our book in terms of a political ecology of fascism, meaning the practices and narratives through which the regime built a fascist ecology in its discourse and on the land. Now, instead of pursuing an arithmetic evaluation of the fascist environmental attitude, how many trees were planted, how many parts were created, and so on and so forth, we have decided to work on what I would say is a fascist environmental grammar that is understanding we have tried to understand the very logic organizing the fascist vision of nature. This also implies that we decided to focus on the meanings and political framing of initiatives and not only, or maybe even not so much, on the initiative per se. And by the way, this is also extremely true ecologically speaking. So for instance, planting trees to protect hydroelectric reservoirs, so with this political and economic aim, implies to use exotic fast-growing forest species. The result, well, the result, the result is indeed more trees, but also less biodiversity, more power for corporations, and fewer resources for mountain communities. So really, we need to understand the political ecologies of fascism and not just making some kind of arithmetic, uh, you know, uh, counting of how many trees, how many green, whatever green might mean, initiative the regime uh, made. If I may briefly add to this, another thing we, we believe that, that this is, our work here is exemplary of the fact that um, interest in political ecology can help to understand all kinds of regimes in their relationship with environment and the natural world beyond the alleged interest into it. It gives you weapons and instruments to understand how any regime or political system works within the constraints of the environment and surrounds it and acts within it that go beyond the what Marco called the environmental ghetto in which environmental historians ended up being set in. And also that some part of this ghetto, like history of conservation, which is my personal speciality, are still important because they help you to understand how the environment is managed in specific ways that go beyond an interest in protecting nature as such. Yeah, and if I just connect to that, so I think what is crucial in our book is how the environment can be political, can be depoliticized, and can be politicized. And in the same way how the environment can be historicized or ahistoricized. So in our book, the environment speaks of the politics and polity in which it is embedded. And uh, fascism is, is, if fascism is a form of authoritarianism, its environment cannot say something different. So plants, forests, dams, they respond to 
the same oppressive and controlling approach of uh, laws on elections, for example, or administrative reforms and Russia laws. So we show also in this interview how plants or uh, animals are political and decision over plants and animals are part of the political agenda. So using the environment, I think we demonstrated that it's much more richer than simply being uh, environmentalist. So environmentalism is just part of the uh, larger use of the environment a regime can or cannot decide to do. Thank you. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time has gone since completing this book? What are you working on now? What have you been working on or intending to work on next as a subsequent project? Well, maybe I can say something about, of course, about myself, but maybe also something about the three of us together as a band, if I can say in this way. So uh, as a band, we we are thinking, precisely going, you know, following up the book that we have been discussing today uh, to try to to uh, explore, to research the contradictions, the overlapping, the friction between the fascist regime and specifically the Italian fascist regime and other regimes around it, abroad, outside Italy, try to understand whether there are specificities in the way in which the fascist regime addressed some environmental issues and questions and more in general the management of the environment. We do believe that they are, but we also do believe that there, there is a need to um, to do more research, to work more, to explore more this, uh, this issue. So we hope that, that the three of us we will find time, energy uh, to, to work on this new project together. And we envision that project as probably a more, you know, even more collective than just the three of us. Maybe we need a, a larger team. Personally, very quickly, I have just published another book on the Vaillant Dam disaster. It's a disaster uh, that happened in Italy in 1963. The very big 2000 people were killed. Uh, the book was just released and uh, MIT Press will publish uh, the English translation of the book. So hopefully it will be ready also for a broader public. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And I uh, can, oh, sorry. <laughs> we think we stored there. Uh, I'll go. Um, yeah, I've been working for a long, long time on, uh, on on history that is not fascist, which was a big relief for a long period of time. And I've been looking at the history of the concept of mean sea level, so it's the history of science that talks to environmental history, and which will appear with the uh, University of Chicago Press in later this year. And my the project I'm working on now is bringing me back to my interest in the history of conservation, and it's uh, environmental history of sound and how ideas of sound have affected the desire, willingness, and push towards preserving certain areas and certain environmental objects in respect to others. Thank you for sharing. And well, after Mussolini's Nature was released, I uh, finalized another, uh, yeah, another monograph and it was released at the same time of Marcos one. So my monograph is on the history of the Pontine marshes before the fascist reclamation project. So it's a 19th century history of the area. Uh, at the moment, I am Thinking more into fascist colonialism in Africa from uh, not from the perspective of natural elements. So the plan is to write a proper environmental history of fascist colonialism in Africa, but I still don't have a deadline. Thank you for sharing that. Your respective projects sound absolutely phenomenal and so important. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you so much. For hosting us. Thank you. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'd like to thank you with the entire essence of my being for your generosity, eloquence, and erudition in our time together today, and for all the effort and sacrifice you invested in preparing this book, Mussolini's Nature, an Environmental History of Italian Fascism. Thank you, Ari, for inviting us. It was a pleasure to talk with you. It was a pleasure to uh, talk about this book uh, once more. It's, uh, it's, I love talking with my colleagues and with other people about this book because new ideas come while while we talk about it. I think that 
uh, presenting this book will really help us in developing the idea that Marco mentioned earlier to go in for uh, bringing back together the band. Is that the quotation uh, you wanted to make? <laughs> yeah. I, I Well, I, I don't have anything else to add to what Vilko said. Just I, I cannot wait to have the band together again. So ready for another tour. Unfortunately, Bruce Priesting said that he will not join. But, you know, you never know. Maybe. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Marco Amiero, Roberto Biasilo, and Vilko Graf von Hardenberg regarding their newly published book, Mussolini's Nature, an Environmental History of Italian Fascism, published in Cambridge, Massachusetts by MIT Press 2022. Marco is a member of the Institute for the History of Science at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. Roberto is a, Roberta is a member of the Department of History and Arts at Utrecht University. Wilco is a member of the Department of Cultural History and Theory at Humboldt University in Berlin. Thank you again so, so much.